You're listening to the Rugged Legacy Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Putnam. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Rugged Legacy Podcast. I'm joined today with John Fitch, former UFC and Bellator welterweight champion. Uh, He's got 17 years of experience in the ring, a lot more outside the ring. Uh, got it starting uh, into the combat sport arena uh, with wrestling, which is awesome. Uh, my oldest son wrestled in high school, and he wanted to go further with it, but never really did. But, John, thanks for coming on the show, brother. Oh, man, thanks for having me. Yeah, I saw uh, you were fighting out of San Jose, and mm-hmm. you only went – and you went to San Jose, California, just looking for better opportunities for training, right? Because, I mean – being yeah, from well, Indiana, there's not a whole lot of there's not a big scene of MMA or UFC in Indiana, well, especially at the time too. You're talking uh, 2000-ish was when I started thinking about fighting, and you know it wasn't even really on pay-per-view. It was already it was banned on pay-per-view at the time. Like you had to you had to get the VHS tapes or watch it, you know, live pay-per-view to see it. Um, but yeah, so when I when I started. Like I, my first fight was 2002. It was when I, when I graduated. So I, I fought for the first time after I, I uh, graduated a few months. Uh, I, I did, I never, I never sparred with anybody before. I, I went to the, the fight without a corner. My first fight without a corner. I didn't have a, I didn't have a cup because I never wrestled with a cup. I didn't think you needed a cup. <clears throat> um, so yeah, it was just, it was a different time. Like you didn't really know what was going on because it was a new sport. And, uh, you know, I think I probably had 14 fights before I ever signed a contract, uh, to, to, uh, to fight. Um, there was, uh, there was no regulation for, for a while in a lot of places, uh, certain States like Indiana, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't illegal to have fights, but it wasn't regulated either. So anybody, anybody could put on a show. And uh, a lot of times what they do is the promoters would put on amateur events and it was just a code word to, you know, I'm not going to pay anybody because they were still full fight, you know, full fights, full rules. Like the only thing was like, the, the people weren't getting paid. Um, so like it was, uh, it was, uh, it was an interesting time back then compared to now. I think people wouldn't, wouldn't even recognize uh, how like a lot of the, a lot of the sports stuff happened back then. Yeah, it, it was a weird evolution. Uh, you know, you're, I think, maybe eight, ten years older than I am. And I remember in the early 2000s when it, we started hearing about this thing called, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yeah. Ultimate Fighting and Mixed Martial Arts. And, you know, we all grew up in the WW, uh, the WCW, you know, era, watching, mm-hmm. you know, guys get hit with aluminum chairs and all this <laughs> other crap. And... Uh, at least yeah. down south, you know, here in the Bible Belt, there was like a strong push against it. You know, mm-hmm. it was, you know, barbarism as far as they were concerned. You know, yeah. a bunch of meatheads pounding on each other. And we started to see a little bit of the underground scene here. Mm-hmm. And again, it was the amateur, not really regulated. You know, they've yeah. like clear out a rock and roll club. <laughs> and mm-hmm. have yeah, some yeah, dudes yeah. wail on each other for a little mm-hmm. while. No, I I cornered a guys in a uh, a smoky bar where they they just built they built a, a little wooden ring and had ropes around it and like it was it was had duct tape on it and it was uh, you know guys were 
you know, smoking cigarettes, sitting next to the, next to the, the ring. It was crazy. See, that sounds more awesome than crazy though. <laughs> well, I went, I went down and fought uh, one of my early fights. I fought down in uh, Mexico and uh, in Monterey. So like we flew down to like <clears throat> uh, the border, whatever border town that was near war, uh, near Juarez, Albuquerque or not Albuquerque. Uh, Juarez is right outside of El Paso. Paso I think. Yeah. yeah. So we flew in El Paso, drove into Juarez, drove all the way down to Monterey. That was wild because I I rode into a, I rode in with uh, uh, some some Mexican guy and his his girlfriend in the back of their car. Like I just met these people. We landed. Like I just met these people. <laughs> the other people were in other cars. Like I was the extra, so I went, went in this car. I was by myself. Like passing semis and i didn't have no idea where we're going like i could have been kidnapped didn't speak spanish either <laughs> no not a, not a lick <laughs> i mean um, but you could fight so that was uh i could fight <clears throat> and that then, was yeah, an okay so, thing and that was uh we fought we fought in a nightclub so that was that was pretty cool there was a nightclub and there was there were people sitting like above us in the balcony area area um that was, that was a fun experience they had a they had a big uh stage that would rotate. So you'd stand on the stage and it'd rotate and like you'd, you'd go and stand in front and to the uh, audience and then you'd walk down to the cage. It was uh, it was a fun, uh, it was a fun trip for sure. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So, you know, you went, uh, you went to school in Indiana, you grew up there, you got into wrestling, then you ended up wrestling in Purdue was, did you plan on evolving into a professional fighter or was that just something you were using as a means for athleticism? No, it was, it was, uh, it was just an escape. Um, you know, I was with John kind of drawn to battle, but I, we didn't have fighting or anything. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, wrestling was the closest thing to it. I was, I was in the WW, uh, you know, F when I was little, you know, junkyard dog and Hulk Hogan and all the guys, I had all the oh, dolls, yeah. big boss, man. But then I, uh, I went to my first wrestling practice in the fourth grade and I was like, Psh, you know, forget this. It's like, this is fake. I was, I was mad. I was mad at it. <laughs> so then I, I just, I just wrestled and I thought that was awesome. I thought, I, you know, I wanted to play football. Like I didn't even think, uh, I didn't even put wrestling as my number one thing until my senior year because I, I was, I was planning on playing football, but I realized I was a little bit too short and I was a little bit too slow and I was a little bit too undersized to, uh, to play the positions that I wanted. So I was like, well, I can, I can walk onto a football team and, and never really play, or I can walk onto a wrestling team and, 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 you know, be the starter, you know, maybe, maybe win a national title. So I walked on and did the wrestling and at Purdue, Tom Erickson was a uh, assistant coach there. He's a heavyweight coach. He spent like 10 or 13 years under Bruce Baumgartner as the number two guy for the, uh, the, you know, heavyweight wrestlers um, for the U S and then uh, he was fighting in Japan at the time. He'd fought a little bit in Brazil, and then he was fighting in Japan. So he had guys like Mark Coleman and Gary Goodrich and some other guys would come through uh, to Purdue to train with Tom. And then Tom would help him with the wrestling. And uh, I would jump in. I was one of the bigger guys, so I would jump into workouts too because it was something different to do. So that's how I kind of started training in the sport. And then – um, I think it was when I started student teaching 
as a senior. So I'd gone through my five years of school already and I'm getting ready to graduate. So I'm going through my student teaching because that's the last semester before you graduate. And like the first week, I'm like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I was like, what's go? I was like, great. This is great. <clears throat> I was like, I don't really like this. I'm like, I can tell that people that have this job don't really like it. <clears throat> it's like their hands are tied. They don't really get to do much with the curriculum. They don't pay. They don't get paid that much. The kids don't want to be there. They don't want to learn what you're teaching. You don't want to teach what you're teaching. I was just like, this is a mess. I was like, I, I really don't want to do this. <clears throat> so then I started uh, looking towards fighting as a, is an escape, not even a, uh, a, a viable career choice, but it was an escape, something I could go and do and put my time into. And then I could, uh, I could, the idea was to teach. I could ha own a gym or I could, uh, you know, do seminars. I could be a teacher without having to do the crap that goes along with being a school teacher. And I can just coach. I can make money just being a coach. So that was kind of, kind of where I put my, my focus. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said. My wife was a, a school teacher for a little while. Mm. And there's a lot to be said that goes into that. You, you, there's no freedom in it because everything, nope. like you said, your hands are tied. And yep. when, unless you are, I mean, unless you're in one of those really lucky positions where you're in a really great school and you get a say and in, in where your curriculum and how your teaching goes, but most places are not like that. Yeah. No, my wife was a teacher at a private school. And it was a private little Christian Academy. So it was just, this is the curriculum. You can't deviate. And it, it, it killed her. She ended up having to leave that job. But yeah. I imagine, you know, being a student teacher in your senior year at Purdue, there were some people you just wanted to hit anyway. So uh, it seemed like fighting was the appropriate escape. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah well i mean that was the thing too okay so at that time when i was in school the movie fight club was out and there's a there's a line in that movie where he's like uh he's like how much can you really know about yourself if you've never been in a fight right and uh like other than fighting with teammates in the past i hadn't i hadn't had really any fights like there was a couple of drunken brawls brawls in college but there was never like, okay, me and this guy are going to have it out. So then I, I started thinking about that and I was like, okay, I should, I need to do this once. I should do this at least once. I think that's why I decided to take the first fight. Well, that's a but good zero training. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, it, it reminds me of uh, something that Jack Donovan said. Uh, I had Jack Donovan on the podcast a few mm -hmm. weeks ago. Uh, we were talking about his book, uh, the way of men and yeah, the way it. of men. Yeah. And it's, it's good. a great book the way of men is violence. It is, you know, that's how we, mm -hmm. that's how we measure ourselves up against our peers. And that's how mm -hmm. we, you know, we have friends that can hold their own because if we get pulled into a brawl, we want friends that are, that can hold their own and not run away. And yeah. so the line, you know, in the movie fight club, like you mentioned, it rings true because the question that we always ask ourselves is, am I enough? Mm -hmm. well and there's uh man there's something to it like uh, i i did a modern army combatives program i got a level four uh instructor uh, certificate but part of that program uh they used to use it uh for the uh the army uh, part of the program was they they did this thing where they 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 force a clinch okay mm -hmm. so they they hype up this moment like they take one person in the room at a time 
<clears throat> right? So they, they get you psych, psyched up or psyched out over it. Uh, they, they're supposed to come in and, and grab the, the, the instructor who's in there. And the instructor, they're telling them that the instructor has boxing gloves on. He's going to beat the crap out of you. And if you don't grab him, you're going to get beat up. Right. And, and it's, 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 you know, it's not a hundred percent, but they're led to believe it's a hundred percent. Like this guy's going to beat the crap out of you. If you don't run in there and you, you have to clinch him. Right. So put your arms on him and give him a hug. Um, and the idea is um, it's a psychological test. Is this person going to run into danger and do what they have to do no matter what? Like the, and it's a, it's a, it's a test. Like it, it really is a test. It's, it's not even so much of a, uh, you know, you're learning how to do it. It's like, are you willing to just pull the trigger and go? Yeah. I remember those uh, days. Uh, I was in the army national guard. Hmm. Uh, I remember those days uh, as a very young and naive and just thinking I was a hard ass 19 year old, mm -hmm. 11 Bravo infantryman, you know, and we came <laughs> up on those days when we started going through our uh, combative, uh, combative training I'm five foot seven. I weigh a buck 50. And it was always these giant six foot five, 250 mm -hmm. pound dudes. But you, it was something psychological. Were you willing to go in there mm -hmm. and possibly have the crap kicked out of you? Yeah. But there's never a, a feeling of just aliveness, as it were, than when you're scared of getting your head taken off. Being in the moment doesn't yeah. get any more in the moment than that. It really doesn't. Yeah. And I, I think, because this was in the early 2000s, that was when they started kind of implementing a little bit of Brazilian jiu-jitsu mm -hmm. into the Army combatives training. Yeah. And uh, we, we thought we were all hot shit from all of that, <laughs> you know. But, again, I remember the force of clinch days. Those were rough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I. Um, that's funny. Uh, my buddy – he he uh he joined the army he later became a ranger but i i was man i don't even think i was a blue belt yet but i i showed him a few things i showed him like a triangle or whatever and because he knew that triangle he like when he went to basic training he destroyed everybody because the the pass they teach you is like to put an arm in the leg in between the legs and throw the leg over well that that just gives him a triangle you're only really supposed to use that against somebody who's never had any grappling experience. <clears throat> so he goes in there and everybody tries to do that one pass and he just choked the shit out of everybody. <laughs> yeah. Like just uh, knowing one thing put him so yeah. much above everybody else. Yeah. The, I had trained uh, uh, BJJ maybe a few years on and off mm -hmm. uh, before I ended up in the, uh, joining the army. And the one thing I knew how to do from a top guard uh, was a bent arm bar. And I thought that made me a ninja. Well, compared to everybody else, I thought that made me a ninja. So that was the one thing I always tried to use on everyone until everybody else got better. So yeah, I know exactly why your buddy was doing that. But uh, no, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's wild. Like <clears throat> submissions and grappling, it, it's like knowing how to swim, like knowing a little bit goes a long way. You know, oh, just, absolutely. just being able to doggy paddle is a whole hell of a lot different than not knowing how to do anything. Yeah. Uh, a buddy of mine owns a coffee company called Ground Shark Coffee. Mm, Nick. And yeah, you know, Nick. Yep. I'm an affiliate. Yep. Ground Shark is great coffee. Yeah. But I, it is great coffee. I really love good. the Mad Cub blend as a plug mm. for you, Nick. But uh, 
no, uh, you know, I asked him about ground shark and he was like, well, you know, it's like being in the water with a shark and you don't know how to swim if you're up against someone who knows BJJ. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, holy shit, that's, that's pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. But, um, so you were and there. Yeah, most people don't spend much time of their life on the ground. Like, no. It's just, it's once you get past a certain level of childhood, uh, people just aren't rolling around on the ground. So they like, they, they don't have the balance. They don't have the ability. Bye. <laughs> come peeking in here. Oh, that happens. But yeah, like if you don't, if you don't uh, make yourself on that plane and do stuff on that plane, moving around, like you're, you have no idea how to move. Yeah, but um, you know, like I said, you were there from the beginning in the birth of the sport, and you went through Bellator. I saw you on the Ultimate Fighter season one. No, I, I, uh, I didn't, I wasn't on the ultimate season fighter one. I was supposed to be, but they, um, yeah, you, you didn't make the selection for the first yeah. season. I didn't yeah. make the selection for the first season. Uh, and they you, left and me you, at the airport. I, I, I was on the season that Koscheck was coach. I came on and was on for a couple episodes. Yeah. And it was a production error that left you stranded at the airport, right? Uh, I mean, they, uh, they just said that they cut the numbers of the showdown which, which maybe, maybe it was true. Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows with these people. Right. Yeah. But uh, you came back in, what was it? 2005. Um, well, they, uh, I, I signed with the UFC. I think 2005 was my first fight with them. I had to, I took a short notice fight because they had somebody else who was an undefeated uh, middleweight, 185 pounder, and they were trying to showcase him. So they needed somebody for him to fight. So they, uh, had me move up a weight and, and fight him. That's how I got my first initial fight in the UFC. Yeah, and you mainly competed at welterweight because you're you're mm-hmm. walking around at what one seventy? Um, not walking around. I, I compete at one seventy. Uh, right now today, I'm probably about two sixteen. Okay. <laughs> but um, uh, when I'm, you know, training camp, I'm usually about one ninety five. And then I'll, I'll, I'll cut down. I actually, I actually, last week I came out with uh, a new book. Yeah. The weight uh, cut Bible. My weight cut Bible. Yep. Yeah. That's so where I'll, I was leading I'll, in with this. Yeah. That, I'll, leave, <laughs> I'll lose about 30 pounds in about eight weeks. Yeah. That's where I was leading in with this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going from uh, middleweight competitor to welterweight competitor, mm-hmm. you ha- you got to cut some weight, but you see a lot of people go un you know, very unhealthy ways about that. But in your most, book, most you... people do it really unhealthy because they don't really they really don't know how to do it. They they try to cut all the water weight at the last second um, by sweating it all out in the sauna or bathtub or whatever, and they haven't done any of the prep work in the weeks leading up up to that moment. And the uh, the man the the stress that you put on your organs and your body when you do it, things that way. Uh, it's just, it's just not healthy. It's not good for you long-term. It's not going to be good for your athletic performance and you're probably going to end up missing weight a lot. Yeah. You see that a lot uh, of performance issues and health issues come up with those guys who are the mm-hmm. competitive bodybuilders and they, they're just mega dehydrated when they're competing mm-hmm. and cause it's not sustainable, mm-hmm. but you seem like you figured out a way, you know, especially with your book, you know, proving it, you figured out the method uh, to, it to took, approach it, it in a healthy I mean, way. It, it took a career of doing it because I uh, I definitely didn't know how to how to cut weight and do it right when I was in college, and then um, I figured out a better way of cutting weight 
when I started fighting professionally because, you know, we had, we had 24 hours of recovery time now as a professional versus as a wrestler, we had one to two hours of recovery time. Damn. So the strategies changed a little bit there and I started developing, you know, consistent strategies to help make the weight, but it was, it was difficult because I didn't figure out the, the eating yet. And then, uh, 2000, 11, I started uh, paying more attention to diet and nutrition. I made the mistake of becoming vegan for a little while. Oh, shit. Uh, and then that, that was a mistake. But then finally, I got, I got back to eating clean. And then 2016, finally, is when I started meal, meal planning and meal prepping. And that was the final, the final key that uh, made everything uh, mechanical mechanical that's the best way to put it because i could tell you know what my weight was going to be when uh what my, where my weight was going to be after i ate a certain meal where it was going to be for the workout so i could i could uh change my portions and i could nail the weight i needed to when i needed to hit it and uh i've been doing the same meal plan meal prep basically since uh 2016 even when I'm not fighting, I stick to the meal plan that I, I talk about in the book just because uh, it keeps me lean, it keeps my energy high, and uh, especially now in the quarantine, it keeps me rationing my food. If you're a person who's not good at rationing your food, like meal planning is awesome for that. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, but I, I, uh, I still get to eat my cheat meals. I'm a lot healthier. I'm a little bit beefier right now because the quarantine, I've been snacking a little bit. Snacks yeah, I think and every, I think everybody's doing that. Snacks and whiskey. That's the way yep. to put it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It used to be uh, <clears throat> me and my me and my business manager. We'd we'd work all day and uh, split a bottle of wine. But like we're four weeks deep now. We're we're splitting a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's not the cheap stuff, you're good. Man. Oh no, it's yeah. Jameson's my my staple there. Uh, that's good. I got a. I've got Jameson and I've got McAllen 12 because I love That's my, yeah. McAllen 12 is where I go if I want to spend a little extra. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with a good Jameson though. No, exactly. That's, that's my base. That's my, that's my base uh, beverage. <laughs> yeah. So when you were getting started in the sport and everything was pretty much unregulated, there was mm -hmm. a long period of time you didn't get paid. I know at one point you were fighting for peanuts. But you stuck with Most it, time. And, yeah, yeah. and you know you stuck with it, and you made it up to where you are now. Uh, still peanuts. <laughs> it's still peanuts. We we have a very uh, exploitative environment because the sport is still kind of young. It's it's it still needs more regulation. Uh, the we're the only sport in the world where the the promoter controls title and exclusive contracts. That's very, uh, that's very corrupt. It's a yeah. corrupt, that's a corrupt structure. Yeah. And you're, uh, kind of wrapped up in some legal proceedings about that now, huh? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I'm involved in a class action lawsuit with the UFC, uh, me and a few other, uh, named plaintiffs have taken on, uh, the lawsuit we believe that UFC is purposely, uh, monopolized the sport and they use mon mon monopsony uh, practices in, in order to uh, control contracts and control the fighters. And they, they only pay out about 20%, less than 20, 17 to 20% of their event revenues to the fighters. 
every other sport pays at least 50% of their revenue uh, to the athletes. Yeah. And see, that's a lot of, that's some things that a lot of people on the service don't realize mm -hmm. is you, your salary is based on your events. It's based mm -hmm. on your winnings and how much hype each fight gets. Mm -hmm. And the, the people who are there, well, I can, I can only say it's either because they're, they've locked into a contract they can't get out of, mm -hmm. or it's, they just purely love make them the sign sport. an eight or nine fight contract. And then the, if you're a champion, there's a championship clause where you have to defend the title. So you become uh, perpetually under their contract. You can never get out of their contract when, once you win a title, unless you lose. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. Uh, we want the Muhammad Ali Act, which is a federal law that protects boxers from uh, uh, guys like Don King. Uh, we would like that, uh, that law passed uh, to... Uh, MMA fighters also uh, under the Ali act. Uh, if you win a title, you become a free agent. Like you become a free agent and you're, you're most valuable. You can, you can sign with a new promoter if you want to, after you've won a title. That's, that's, that's something that it, we def desperately need in, uh, in MMA. Yeah, I can, I can imagine how that would be. Uh, I don't, not even imagine. I see how that's exploitative of all the, all the fighters who've given their lives to the sport. But, mm -hmm. you know, out, outside of the well, sport itself, it's, it's, it's insulting because they're athletes who have put things, put their life on the line to, to, uh, to win something that's is manipulated and basically made up like their, their title is, is a promotional title. It's not a world title. Um, they, they, they mess with the rankings. Like basically the UFC copied the WWE's business model. It's the exact same business model. They do the same thing. They style the shows the same way. Uh, but the UFC doesn't control the outcome. It's not a predetermined outcome. Um, everything else is run exactly like the pro wrestling is. Yeah. And like I was, you know, I was just going to say that there are people who are putting their physical bodies at risk. They're putting their health at risk. They're putting their families at risk. If something bad happens to them in the ring, because mm -hmm. you've seen it, I've seen it. You know, I, I did some amateur boxing back uh, in my younger days. You've seen people, you know, get a dry concussion or whatever in, mm -hmm. in one round and one fight. Then the next round they get a jab and they're done. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's, uh, for, it, it's very, it's very insulting for the fighters to have to deal with something like that. I, 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 I think so. Um, I mean, just to be talked down to just the, there's a history of uh, guys like Dana White talking shit about his fighters and, and uh, you know, back back when Jose Aldo was struggling with injuries and he's talking shit about the fighter being a pussy for not fighting with his injuries. And it's just, it's just, uh, you would never see any other sports uh, owner or president or whatever talk about their, their athletes excuse me, the way that he does. And that's because he has such control uh, over the contracts. Yeah. Uh, so I know you can't really go into a lot of detail on it. Are you guys you thinking you're making some headway on that? We are. We're five years deep into the uh, lawsuit. Last August, we had uh, evidentiary hearings. So the, he, uh, the judge wanted to listen to the experts on both sides in a hearing setting and uh, make a judgment for himself. We're currently waiting for the judge to make his judgment and uh, see if he is going to award us class certification. So he'll determine if we have all been wronged 
and damaged in the same way. Uh, once that happens, then we'll be moving forward to trial. That's the next step. Well, I can't help but you know cross my fingers for you on that, mm. man, because it, it's it's a long process. Because you know we we win, we go to we go to trial, we win a jury trial. They'll they'll appeal, and then it'll be another five years. So this will be probably like a ten year whole thing. <laughs> Yeah, but the important thing is if you can establish uh, a type of structure that they have to abide by yep. for future fighters, it, it, mm -hmm. it does secure the future of the sport. It secures the future of mm -hmm. the other fighters who are up and coming and the fighters who were there can start to get fair contracts and fair treatment. Well, I mean, as, a, as somebody who may transition into doing more coaching, it's not appealing because I, I understand the limitations of earning potential that the fighters have now. Like in order for me to make money, I have to have a bunch of fighters and then crank through them, use them up and get rid of them. I'd rather have, you know, five or six, 10 guys I can put a lot of time and energy into and turn those guys into champions. And then those guys are able to promote themselves. They, they, they get to keep their rank regardless of where they go and, and which promoter they fight for. They keep the title regardless of what promoter they fight for. Like there's just way more, way more chance of making more money that way. Yeah, but in also in that, you know, as a coach, you start to develop a relationship with the people you train. Yeah. And you want them treated fairly when they're going out into the profession that you're getting them ready for. Yeah, right now we have a, a system of, it's a system of pimps and hoes. The fighters are the hoes. Everybody else involved in the system here is making money. They're pimping the, the fighters out. The, uh, the, the, the massage therapists, the athletic trainers, all these people are going to continue making money off of fighters when, when, when a certain fighter uh, gets too old or, or, or gets broken down too much, you know, like they're going to continue to be able to make money when the fighter isn't. Yeah. Damn. That's a pretty rough system. I'm hoping, uh, <laughs> I'm hoping everything uh, works out in your guys' favor. Cause it sounds like mm -hmm. it's really not working out for anybody except for the executives. Yeah. Because I, I mean, I, I honestly feel that the fans are missing out a lot because they don't get to really see uh, the best matchups. Like they don't get to see the, the true number ones and the true number twos fighting each other because you have an arbitrary ranking system that, that's no different than the WWE's ranking system. I gotcha. Well, again, like I said, best of luck with that. But. <laughs> want to shift gears a little bit you've got a podcast uh john fitch knows nothing that's that's a bit of a play on the uh john snow knows nothing thing from the game of thrones there i didn't even know that i didn't uh i just uh i just made that up because i figured i have a lot of strong opinions <clears throat> but if I, I figured if i put i know nothing in the title people can't complain about anything i say because i'm i'm admitting i already don't know anything so don't get too involved in what I say. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a disclaimer. No, my wife saw the podcast. He goes, oh, he must be a Game of Thrones fan. I was like, uh, maybe, maybe <laughs> no, not. I never, I don't yeah. know. No, I never, uh, I never got into it. I never got into the Game of Thrones. Yeah. My wife why. is really big into it. Yeah. And I've seen, I've seen some of them. They're, they're not bad. But uh, what I wanted to shift, shift into here is uh, you're, you're a dad. <laughs> and I see a lot of your videos and things you're putting up. Uh, what's it been like, you know, training your kids versus training 
other athletes because you got to oh, shift you got to shift a little bit there because you can't be as hard on them as you are your athletes <laughs> well i uh i make sure to let them know that when it's training time it's it's i'm coach right i'm not dad i'm coach gonna shift the hats a little bit yeah so you know we step into here we we you know change the, the attitude the lineup on the wall it's you know it's not play time uh, it's still fun. You know, we keep it fun cause it's gotta be fun. Otherwise they're not going to do it. Right. But, um, you know, it's, it's cool. I'm, I'm really excited about it because they're listening. They're like, I, this is the first time that I've really been able to work with them. I've kind of left them alone. I've taken them to other people and other stuff, you know, other, other, other classes and stuff to learn from because I didn't want to force my kids to learn from me and then have them reject it and because sometimes you know i've seen that i've been around the sports enough and i've seen seen i've seen kids get dragged to stuff and then resent what they're doing and resent their parents for dragging them there and then they get older and like oh well i wish i would have done that more because i really like it now so i like i just wanted them to uh gravitate toward things on their own but we're kind of thrown into a position now with uh with this that you know they're not going to get any gym time or they're not going to get any training time if i don't if i don't step it up and and coach them so we have uh, practice a couple times a week we'll have practice for about an hour 40 minutes or so if they can if they can take it a little game time and uh they've been they've been receptive the little one he just loves to battle so like he's kind of easy the older one he was the one that was kind of pushed back before but now he's listening so like they're both just uh on it it's really cool yeah now have you seen because i see this in my kids are the ones that have played competitive sports you know my oldest son was wrestling uh uh in high school i've had uh one now who hopefully when all this is over with he can get back on the football field but there's a shift in their mentality when they start competing mm. you know they start a little bit more of the confidence when they start realizing what they are capable of. Have you, yeah. have you seen any kind of growth like that with your kids? They haven't, um, they haven't started to compete yet, but I, I know, I know what you, I mean, there's a, I call it like a killer instinct. Right. Okay? Like some kids kind of have a, when, when, when they get pushed into a little bit of adversity, like something primal rises up in them. Okay. And it says, it's that killer instinct. Some kids don't have it. Like I've seen that. Like I've had kids that I wrestled with when I was, when I was younger and when, you know, things got tough and they started to get pushed, they didn't push back. They folded. A lot of people do that, but I've, I've seen my boys, uh, you know, their eyes get big, they get fired up, you know, they start pushing hard, you know? So, uh, I've, I've definitely noticed that just have to like guide them in the right, right direction. Yeah, I've got that with my 17-year-old. He played football one season, and he was done. He just mm. – he's not wired the same way, I guess. Yeah. But a lot of the other ones – I think it might be a young kid thing, too, because my youngest, he's five, and this kid is just ready mm. to fight and destroy everything <laughs> all the time. <laughs> You know, he's that's, doing like flying jumps off the top of the bunk beds, trying to like elbow drop his sister. That's, yeah, that's. I have to. I have to like uh, <clears throat> keep my stomach tight all the time because the little one pops out around corners and jacks me in the stomach. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's great. 
Yeah, I'll be brushing my teeth. He'll come up, punch me as hard as he can in the butt. They uh, just yeah, they face all over the mirror. <laughs> like, what are you doing? But uh, you know, what? like I have a I have a you know gym set up in my garage, so I have mats. I have a you know ten by twenty space mats with wall mats. I got rings hanging from the ceiling, so they they got you know they can fly around and hang on that stuff. I got a heavy bag, so like we've got a nice little jungle gym area basically back here. We come back to wrestle and rough house. Well, that's important good. stuff. Uh, w- did you think it was important when you were bringing up your kids? Did you think it was important that they at least knew how to fight? Uh, yeah, I think everybody should know how to uh, defend themselves on some, le- le- on some level. That's why I, uh, I've been doing, before the, the, the quarantine, I was doing uh, self-defense seminars. I have a basic self-defense course. Uh, the original plan was to, you know, do one to two a month and then hopefully get into uh, one of the corporate companies around here to help teach self, self-defense in the area. Um, but yeah, that kind of get put in a back burner. I'm also hopefully um, put together an online uh, course. I want to put the, put the course together online too for people. So uh, I'm not coming to your city with the seminar. You can at least learn the same basic techniques, same basic stuff. Uh, what I, what I've learned is, is most people are so out of shape and so clueless when it comes to self-defense or grappling of any type. If you just know a little bit, it, it goes a really long way. Yeah. And I think it's also, you see a lot of people in today's day and age are very adverse to violence. Mm-hmm. But then they, but then they get the inkling that you know maybe I should know how to at least get out of a bad situation. You're not training no. people with the self defense thing. You're not training people to fight for 15 rounds. You're teaching nope. them how to thump and dump and get the hell yep. out. <clears throat> Your uh, job in self defense is to uh, make the exchange prolonged, like make it hard and difficult and long because the attacker doesn't want that. He wants right. a quick, easy prey. He wants to be in and out do what he wants to do and get, a, get away. If you're, if you're loud, if you're fighting back hard, if you're making it difficult, they don't want to be there. Yeah. You want to make it more trouble than, you, than it's worth. Exactly. Uh, I actually saw some of the footage of the one you did with Bobby Dino. Yeah. Yeah. Bobby's a good friend. He's been on the podcast as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had told me a little bit about your uh, self-defense mm-hmm. uh, course that you were setting up. Uh, are you dividing that into age groups and demographics or is it going to be something that's like a one size fits all? Yeah. The, the basic course I came up with is a one size fits all. It's the same, the same things I would teach uh, a, a child uh, to a 90 year old woman. It's just a uh, basic, uh, a lot of space management, a lot, a lot of uh, self-defense and, and, and the battle can be won with controlling the space, controlling the distance between your hips and your opponent's hips very true uh i've gotten choked out more times than i care to remember because i sucked at space management (laughs) but uh Mm -hmm. so when this is all over and you're and you're uh you're planning on making a a nationwide tour with this thing right i mean yeah i mean i have uh contacts in other countries so i'll go i'll go everywhere you know everybody needs self-defense you know yeah that's Uh, fantastic yeah i have uh we have a Michael uh, Martella. He uh, fights in KSW in, in Poland. And I want to, he comes, he's come out to train with us a few times out here at AKA. I'd love to go out and, and visit Poland and, and train with him and uh, go to a KSW because they, they do big shows over there. And uh, 
swoop a couple ring girls. <laughs> uh, that would be a fun trip. Go back to Japan. I've been to Japan before. I got contacts in, uh, you know, Singapore and uh, Vietnam. So, like, there's a lot of places I could, I, I could go. I'd like to go. Yeah, man. Sounds like it'd be really fun, uh, especially the swooping the ring girls part. I'm married, <laughs> but that still sounds fun. You know, I would never cheat on my wife. I'm just saying. It still sounds fun from a single guy's perspective. <laughs> but, uh, you know, has it been an issue uh, being a dad and the travel that you've had to do for fighting? Was that something that uh, you've had to make adjustments for? Um. No, because they, I mean, their, their, their mother is around and is competent. <laughs> so I can, uh, you know, when I, when I, when I travel or leave for fights or whatever, it's, it's all right. I, um, left, uh, when we started having kids, uh, uh, the, the wife started staying, uh, behind, uh, when I went to travel and I would be gone for, you know, just about a week. And, you know, that was doable because, uh, she had family and people around, um, and, uh, you know, the, the marriage has ended, but, uh, there's still, she still has family support and people around. So if I, if I have to leave or I have to go, there's, there's support for the kids. Um, I can always have my parents come into town also and, uh, take care of them. I, I actually last, last summer I went to, uh, uh, they needed me in New York in case, uh, Rory, uh, McDonald didn't show up for his fight. So they asked me to make weight. So they paid me to go out there and make weight, but I'd already booked a trip with my kids back to Indiana. So I went and I dropped my kids off with my parents and they stayed with my parents in Indiana for a week. And I went to New York city for a week. And then I came back and did, you know, uh, the, the, the next week in Indiana with the kids at the lake. So, um, I'm, I'm lucky to have, you know, a good support system. So I have, you know, family around that I can lean on if I need to. And then, uh, the ex is, is here too. And her family is, is uh, around if I need them. Yeah, that's good. I know when I was traveling on the road, it put a big strain on my relationship. Uh, it was something that I had to just get out of. But you know, I, I can I see like, if I you like, have nine—I mean, nine kids—is you're, yeah, it's, it's, it was you're leaving you're leaving the <laughs> wife with nine nine children. I can understand how there would be some uh, yeah. issues. <laughs> yeah, it, it it wasn't a favored time of hers, but uh. No, I can see, I watch the way that you do all your videos that you put up on social media with your kids. You know, it's, it's really cool to see them roughhousing and running around and jumping and being more active. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I've struggled with my kids is, especially now during this whole quarantine thing, they can't go anywhere. Yep. I mean, my wife and I, we leave the house all the time. We go and run all the errands, you know, we're not yep. all this other, but they stay home except for the one that has to go to work, but don't want them too exposed. We've got some, uh, fenced in acreage here that they run around in, play with a dog and frisbee mm. and football, all this, that, the other, but the older ones are starting to get a little more. Just, I only see them when they come to get food, mm. you know, because <laughs> they're, they're, they're missing their friends and they're missing that social interaction. And, uh, mm -hmm. So has that been something that you've had to, you know, work on with your kids? Are they getting a little antsy in this whole thing? Uh, I mean, I, I, uh, keep them 
pretty active. I like to be active with them. I'd like to do what I call enforced boredom. So I, I shut, I shut all the electronics off and then it's just like, be creative. Let's make something. Let's do something. Let's dig something. Uh, go out in the garage, rough house, whatever. We'll figure out something. But yeah, like it's that. good to just to uh, shut everything off. And it's, you know, I'll say it. It's time. It's time to be bored. Let's go. Turn it off. Oh, that's the worst thing too. When the kid comes in and says, "I'm bored." Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't. They know not to do it now because it's like they have. They have a huge box of Legos. They've got you know some art supplies, Play-Doh. Like I'm creative. Like I'll make stuff with them all the time. I do stuff on my own all the time. So like they have no excuse. <clears throat> Yeah. So outside of the, uh, the issues that you've had with the UFC, the issues that you've had with, you know, uh, the lawsuit and, and being shut down from your coaching and all this other, where you can't get out and do all this other, are you using this time to plan for what's coming next? Or are you just kind of riding the wave until you can get started again? I'm, I am, I'm planning, um, you know, I, I, well, fortunately for me, a lot of what I was planning on doing was, was, uh, linked a lot to, uh, online content and, and, uh, marketing stuff, you know, uh, with, with podcasts and live streams and, uh, writing books, stuff like that, blogs. So that's kind of still going in the path that I was before. Uh, it's less, less of the seminar stuff, but, um, that may come back hopefully this summer. If not, we'll, we'll figure something out. Uh, I might have, uh, figure out a way to do, uh, <clears throat> personal training, private lessons, something like that. But, uh, I'm, I'm mostly planning, uh, to ride this through the future. Um, being able to, cause that was my, my goal was to be able to, I want to run business and uh, be uh, location independent and uh, I want to be able to travel, you know, so, so I still, still want to keep pushing in that direction regardless of the quarantine. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm ready mentally if things get worse, <laughs> like I've got my seeds, <laughs> I've got a, I've got a, uh, I've got a lead on a couple of uh, chicks, baby chicks. Oh, okay. <laughs> So maybe I'll have that could have gone either way. That yeah. could have gone either way. I was, <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, we we so, started doing that here. We got into the self sustainability <clears throat> thing a while ago, but you know I've got this giant twelve by twenty garden. I'm mm-hmm. getting uh, some rabbits and some chickens and all this that and the other. I want goats, but we don't have the space for it. Yeah. But uh, you know, one thing I was curious about though, you're doing these online uh, self-defense classes that you're, you know, going to be putting out for people. I've seen the, uh, I don't know if you remember them. You probably do back when, uh, BJJ started becoming mainstream, you had the online videos of how to do BJJ. Mm -hmm. And those were, you know, if how effective they were at actually teaching, because you don't really learn it unless you're rolling with someone. Yeah. But I'm curious as to what, how you're making these self-defense videos effective uh, for online. It well, seems like uh, be a challenge. So the, I mean, like the, the, especially the basic one, the basic course is going to be basic movements, basic ideas, um, even a couple of basic exercises to make sure you're competent in certain positions. 
but um, it's, it's really it is basic. It's really simple. And you're going to have to um, find a drill partner to be able to, to effectively learn the stuff. Like, uh, but um, you know, the, the, the basic stuff is all on your feet. Like, so you're not going to need mat space. You're not going to need to grapple a lot. A lot of the focus is maintaining separation or creating separation. Okay. Like I'll have a couple uh, um, situations where uh, you're trying to, you're trying to break their, their bear hug. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. See, I was, I was curious about it because, you know, a lot of people, it reminds me of back in the day when we watched shows like Kung Fu, Mm -hmm. you know, you you have that one kid in the mirror making all the Mm -hmm. Kung Fu moves, but you know, when I started looking at BJJ, when it started getting really mainstream, especially with like the, the invasion of the Gracies, Mm -hmm. you know, where I was from, there's, you would have to drive six hours to go find a BJJ gym, you know, and it's still kind of difficult to find any that are around. That's why I I moved to California is because I was in Indiana and there was nowhere, nowhere to train. Yeah. I, uh, man, I, uh, I was training for the first fight and me and my buddy Mo, we, uh, we were the only guys that were really into MMA at all at the time. So we would, we would trade together, but he's, you know, 145, 155 pounds. And then uh, he would work out with the Purdue judo club sometimes, and they would just work on ground stuff sometimes. So we would go and grapple with those guys a little bit, but they, they didn't, you know, their specialty was throws. They didn't know a lot of stuff on the ground, the submission stuff on the ground. And then uh, you would find guys at the bar who always talked about, Oh yeah, I watched UFC. I'm, I'm training to fight. I'm this whatever belt. And then, so you try to get them to come in. Like I was training for my first fight and we had, I think like, eight guys lined up on the wall as Mo and like the other guys. And then they were supposed to come and rotate through. And as I submitted them, they would go to the end of the line. The new guy would come in and I was doing, I was doing five minute rounds. I was supposed to do three, five minute rounds. And there's eight of them. And just me after two minutes, two and a half minutes of the first round, they had all, they were all done. (laughs) They were all tired. They couldn't breathe. They, they wouldn't, they didn't want to come in and, and do it anymore. And I, I had zero idea what I was doing with submissions. I didn't know anything. Like I, I my jujitsu instructor was 300 pound Tom Erickson and, and, and Mark Coltman. <laughs> like Jesus, like, but I was still like, and that was, that was the level of people you had to, to train with at the time. Like I joined a, a, a fighting club um, at Purdue that was uh some guy was trying to just get to all the, all, all the martial artists he could find together and share their martial arts. And so I joined that club just cause it was the only fighting club. And uh, yeah, they would teach me bullshit and I would show them some wrestling moves. And then <laughs> like uh, I tried to grapple with them a few times and then like they weren't having that. <laughs> they didn't want to use their, their dim mock. So oh, like, shit. yeah, I was just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had, I had, I think seven fights before I ever, I ever, I ever spart. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You mentioned the, uh, the guys who just were gassed after the first two, two minutes of the round and didn't want to fight again. That's the first thing that happens when you join uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is you just get beat yep. up constantly and you have to be willing to go back and get your ass kicked by these yep. white belts 
who look like they weigh like 85 pounds who just mm-hmm. choke the shit out of you for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. When the, when the, when the 115 pound uh, girl who's a purple belt comes over and chokes the shit out of you, you're like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> yeah. You're like, I don't understand why I'm dying all the time, but you know, it takes a little bit of fortitude. So yeah, I can imagine, especially in the very early days of the sport, it was very hard to find people who were willing to actually yeah. go get choked. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people who like to talk about it. We that's the thing we always say is uh, everybody's a fighter, but nobody wants to fight. Yeah, that that happened, and uh, it's it's still difficult where we are here to find places like this. There's like one BJJ studio and one boxing studio, but the prices are outrageous, mm. and it's just not as mainstream. And there's no competition for them to drive their prices down. Yeah. I mean, these, these people are charging like 200 bucks a lesson mm. and you know, they're not going to get anything here, but again, they're not getting a whole lot of people interested. So they have to raise their prices up to make a living, Yeah, but it'd be nice to see more of it here. But I think it's a cultural thing here in the Bible belt. They're still adverse against people beating each other up. Yeah. I mean, South Carolina also isn't known to have um, a lot of wrestling from no. my knowledge. Yeah. No, like we're not a, not a big grappling state. No, North, here, North Carolina, North Carolina yeah. does. Yeah. But here it's like uh, football is a religion. Yeah. But outside of that, we're starting to get, to get big in lacrosse, but outside of that, hmm. there's, it's just football and yeah, I'm not a football guy. I like fights. <laughs> I, uh, I used to be, I stopped, I stopped watching football. Like I thought I was going to play professional football. I love football, but then it just, it just started getting boring. And then I always, I like to joke and bore and say that it's uh they started having too many women on, on the, on camera <laughs> doing the, <laughs> doing the talking stuff that turned me off. Hey, it happens. But uh, yeah, we're rolling up on the hour mark. And before we go outside of what you've got going on now with your, uh, your self-defense courses, your seminars, and all this other coming through. You're, you're talking about writing books. What's coming up next in the book realm? What are you working on there? Well, I last year I came out with uh, my Failing Upward Death by Ego, <clears throat> Failing Upward Death by Ego book, uh, and that's uh, I have like uh, 17 years of journals that I I kept through my fight career. Wow. So uh, I was going to write like an auto, autobiography, or whatever, but there's just too much, too much. Uh, uh, madness in the journals, so I just said I decided to share the journals straight up, and then I write reflections about the journals. Uh, I have a lot more books to write. <laughs> uh, I have to get through all that stuff, but it's kind of it's kind of hard because you're forced to uh, travel back in time and kind of relive some of the things. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of cringe when you're reading your own thoughts and opinions from 20 years ago. There's a lot, there's a lot of cringe. (laughs) Yeah, I did that with uh, a book that I wrote. uh, It's called setting yourself on fire. And I Mm -hmm. went through the hardship that I went through uh, about seven years ago with being homeless with my wife and my kids Mm -hmm. when we lost everything in the, in the, uh, the kind of the downslide of the great recession that we all went through in 2008, 2009. And I can imagine how 17 years worth of shit you know, 
and looking back on all that and having to go through it, I can imagine <laughs> that would be a challenge. Well, some of it, like the first book <clears throat> was a lot of fun because, um, man, I was so happy. Like I had a lot of terrible takes on a lot of things, <laughs> like, but, uh, like I was, I was dirt poor. I was living, you know, uh, I, I would have to, you know, make my cash at the bar at night and then drive to the bank and deposit it. So I wouldn't get an overdraft in the morning type stuff you know that was the that was a usual routine but like i was loving it like i i couldn't there was so like uh there was there was more girls that were interested in me than i'd ever been around or seen before coming from indiana um yeah they don't have a whole lot of girls in indiana i guess they do but they're a little bit thick <laughs> big corn girls fed, right corn fed yep <laughs> soy and corn um but yeah, I was like, man, I was getting to travel. I was going to, I was, you know, I went to I had to go to Mexico and fight. <laughs> like I, I did a lot of cool stuff. I went to Japan and I fought, like I was living the dream, even though, uh, you know, I didn't have two nickels to rub together. So that yeah. was, that was, that was, that was really cool. Yeah. And then of course the other stuff comes, to, comes on all after all of that. It's yeah. So like, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see, uh, what stuff happened that I forgot about and I wrote about. Yeah. That'll be interesting. So you're releasing these journals now or that's what you're working on? Well, I have one book. I have, I have one book out now, uh, book one, and then I have other ones I'm working on. I'm only like one chapter into book two. So I've got some work to do. Okay. Well, you've got but, but the weight, the weight cut book, the weight cut book backed me up a little bit because I, I was trying to get actual pictures from Bellator to use, but it was taking too much time. Like I, this book was ready in December, but uh, I couldn't get the photos and I couldn't, I couldn't get a direct line to the person I needed to talk to. So I was like, screw it. I just, I don't need the pictures. Well, you can always just uh, republish a second edition with the pictures. That's true. Yeah. Because I wanted, I wanted to get the, because uh, I didn't think about writing the book until after I'd already made weight the last time my friend, my uh, Coach Mo, told me I, sh I should do it. So uh, if I would have thought about it, I would have taken before and after photos, like nice photos, because I wanted to show the difference in body composition from uh, before the weight cut workout, <clears throat> uh, after the weight cut workout, uh, on the scale in the morning at scratch weight. Um, you know, picture after the first meal, picture before I go to bed at night, picture, you know, in the morning, like show people like how much the body changes in uh, just that, you know, 24 hour period from, from losing the weight, making the weight and then putting it back on. Yeah. That'd be definitely interesting to see in photos. I'm interested in that. Mm. But uh, maybe if they, uh, if they give me a good fight, I'll do it the next time. <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, you're still open to fight. You just obviously not for mm. the UFC. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm signed with Bellator. I got three fights left on my Bellator contract. I just, I just, I've been doing this so long. I wanna, I wanna get, I wanna get paid well, or I wanna fight for titles. I wanna fight for the big fights. I just, I don't, uh, I don't want to get more brain damage for 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 pennies. Yeah, after a while, that shit gets old. But I mean, you're 42 years old, right? Yeah, I've been doing this, you know, 17 you and look, a half years. You look 30 years old, so you've got some life left in you. Mm -hmm. And I'm hopefully... Still, uh, most of my brain cells are still working pretty well. Hey, most is better than none. I know some people who've never fought <laughs> that don't have any, so you're doing good on that on that side of it. But uh, yeah. so, <laughs> so I guess before we go, if there's anything that you could kind of uh, drop off, I like to ask people this. 
if you had one pseudo philosophical piece of advice uh, for up and coming fighters in your mm. case for up and coming fighters, what would it be? Um, well, I don't know if it's necessarily philosophical, but yeah, I will put say pseudo in there. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I will say, I'll say, um, something business related for, for up and coming fighters. Okay. Because at the end of the day, you, you are a business, you know, as a fighter, you are an individual, uh, you're an independent, uh, contractor. You are a business. You must make decisions that are, uh, positive for you to, to make money in this business. And, um, uh, a part of a part of you making money uh, with the current landscape of uh, MMA is, is, is brand building. You, you have to build your brand. Um, and it's not just through fighting. Like you're not always going to get the best fights. You're not always going to get the push from the promoter. Uh, they're not going to always put you out there the way they're supposed to, to, to build you up. Um, so you have to do it yourself. The promoter doesn't actually promote you anymore, like not in MMA. Um, <clears throat> the promoter just wants to use you, crank you through the process and spit you out before they have to pay you six figures. Um, you have to take the approach that you are a brand and you are building that brand. And uh, no matter how much you hate Instagram or social media or whatever, like if you want to be a successful fighter today, unfortunately like that is going to be paired with your brand recognition on social media and uh how you market yourself it doesn't mean you have to be um trash you know you don't have to be a burning trash fire to get noticed but if you want big fights if you want big money if you want to be taken seriously as a fighter you're going to have to build yourself up as a brand and make that brand have uh, buying power. Like people have to want to be around and associated your brand. That's going to make the, the promotion want to use you uh, to make money off of you. It's good advice. A lot of people go into this game and they think that uh, if they're just a good fighter, that mm -hmm. beats care of. But we yep. have seen a lot of that fall apart with these you know, solipsistic relationships with themselves as far as the promoters go. Yep. You know, they're just worried about their bottom line and not so much about the fighter. So 100%. That's, that's, that's really good advice. They don't care about building you up as a fighter. It doesn't suit them or doesn't pay them back to build you up as a fighter. They would rather take people who have built themselves up and then make money off of them. So the, the, that's the key. You have to build yourself up in order to make yourself a valuable commodity for the, the promoter to use. Stop where a lot of guys would think that, oh, I just have to train hard, work hard, be good, win fights. My manager will set up big fights. My manager will negotiate good contracts. It's, it's not going to happen. You have to do everything yourself. Um, if you get to the point where you can hire people out to do it for you, if you can hire a social media manager for yourself, I would do that. If you can hire a business manager for yourself, I would do that. But like when you're first starting off, you're going to, have to do this stuff yourself. Yeah. And again, it's you are a business because I'm a business owner myself and I'm just barely getting into the point where I could hire other people to do those yep. things. And it's a lot of work, mm -hmm. but 
you know, I would say if you are interested in the fighting game and you're wanting to come up uh, and get to a higher level, definitely follow the advice that John is offering right here for those mm -hmm. of you guys listening and watching. I but, mean, just look at um, the, the KSI and, and was it Logan Paul or Jake Paul or whatever, one of the Paul brothers yeah, yeah. had their boxing match. They're not professionals. They had one or two fights. Like They made millions. And yeah. it's because they build up their notoriety through social media. Well, it's easy to do now. You're either going to be a dumpster fire, like you said, or mm -hmm. you're going to be this shining light that everybody knows who you are just because of your social media brand. Um, yeah. I mean, like, like fighters need to start realizing that they, uh, their, their revenue stream from the promoters should only be a small part of the revenue streams. That should only be one. I think like for myself, I, I relied heavily just on that one revenue stream for a long time. And that was, that was doing things the wrong way. I didn't embrace uh, the marketing aspect of what we were doing um, and, and turning myself into a product. I didn't recognize that early enough. And if I would have done that uh, as a younger fighter, I would have had a lot more monetary success for sure. Yeah might have presented more opportunities to fight for bigger fights, bigger titles. Also, if, if I had half a million, uh, you know, YouTube subscribers or, or whatever. Yeah. You know, sadly today's age, you know, if you don't have YouTube or Twitter or Instagram and big numbers there and you are on any level of, you know, celebrity fame, success, well, or whatever. There are, there are uh, promoters who will demand you have a social media following of a, at least a certain amount before they'll even let you fight on their card. Wow. I didn't even know that. That is interesting. Why yeah. is that actually? Because exactly what I said, notoriety. Just like if, notoriety if, no, if nobody's going to if nobody's going to watch you, if, if you, if we can't advertise and get eyeballs to a large number of people, like you're not valuable to us. I got you. So they're equating your, your follower size with how many people are actually going to buy them. It's your, uh, like your, I don't know if it's a Q score. There's a, there's a term for it or whatever, but like, like when, when the UFC or whenever they talk about noodle needle movers, are you a needle mover? Gotcha. A lot of those, well, the needle moves when you have a shitload of followers. Yeah, I got you. Wow. Did not know that, but uh, that's definitely something that a lot of people who are uh, up and coming in the game, because there's a lot of them out there. Everybody mm -hmm. wants to be the, uh, you know, the next John Fitch or the next Conor McGregor, or George mm -hmm. St. Pierre, which that was a good fight, by the way. I saw your fight with John, with uh, George mm -hmm. St. Pierre. That was, that was pretty good. You know, you almost had the Gracie record beat. Almost. almost. Um, I think I'm what the, uh, yeah, I was the first one to do that. Go eight and zero in the modern modern UFC. Yeah, yeah, and that's nothing was... to balk at. I, I'm certainly not going to talk talk back to you. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that. But John, I want to thank you for coming on, brother. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I always like uh, generalized conversations with my guests, just to kind of see where they go, because it keeps it more organic and more interesting. Just like mm -hmm. we're sitting at a bar, back on the patio, smoking cigars, mm -hmm. talking. So I didn't want to come in with an agenda. Like I said before, I just wanted to steer as, no. as far away. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, I do the same thing. I, uh, <clears throat> I just have some basic questions usually on my head. I want to ask the person. I got stuck talking a lot of coronavirus though, the other day with uh, Mike Swick. 
Oh, I talked yeah. to him, his old <laughs> friend, because I forgot. I live with Mike for a little bit. He's a little bit of a hypochondriac. I forgot. Oh, man. This, so I you're asked having him. a lot of fun with him. He's, he's having a – he's, like, all shut down, and he's in Thailand <laughs> right now. He's all, he's all bunkered in, and he's, like, he's freaking out. <laughs> it just makes me wonder how Howie Mandel is doing with all of this. Yeah, he's a big germaphobe too, huh? Oh, yeah. yeah. I think he's locked away in an igloo in Canada right now. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> wow. But, uh, again, John, thanks for coming on, brother. Oh, thanks for that, man. It's good being here. Good talking. Yeah. Uh, for those of you watching, for those of you listening, there will be links to John's books and where to get into contact with him where you can reach him on social media. There will be links to everything he's offering in the show notes. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you're subscribed to the channel. And if you're listening on iTunes or Google Play, please leave uh, a review. Those help more than you could possibly know. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. This is Jeff Putnam of the Rugged Legacy Podcast with John Fitch, and we are out. Thank you for listening to the Rugged Legacy Podcast. I hope you've been enjoying the content on all of the episodes, especially this one here. If you'd like to become a contributor and support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash rugged legacy and click on the support icon. Everyone wants to rise from the ashes, but very few are willing to set themselves on fire. This has been a Rugged Legacy production.